Hello, everybody. We have an update to this podcast. In between the recording and release of this episode, in which we discussed EPA's supplement to the original 2019 PM 2.5 integrated science assessment, EPA has actually gone ahead and released the updated draft policy assessment for PM 2.5. So we got the supplemental information, and then we went ahead and got the policy assessment in between the recording and the release where they lay out some additional evidence. So essentially what the draft policy assessment, the new draft policy assessment says is once again that there's evidence to support lowering the annual PM 2.5 NACs to 10 and possibly even 8 depending on what weight you put on certain studies. And I think the one difference between 2019 and this latest version is that in 2019, it had said that the evidence supports retaining the current 24-hour standard, but this one leaves the door ajar on even the 24-hour PM 2.5 NACs and potentially lowering it to 30 from 35 to 30 micrograms per cubic meter. So that's an update we wanted to make sure that we got out. It does not otherwise impact some of the practical advice and things that we talked about as it relates to a Titan PM 2.5X. Thanks. Welcome to For the Record, Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the podcast. Been a while since we've been on the air been busy, but we're happy to be back at it. Today, we are going to cover fine particulate PM 2.5, all things recent developments related to PM 2.5. So settle in for an air-related PM 2.5 podcast. I've got two guests this time. You've heard both of them on previous episodes, Familiar Faces. Dan Dix is back with me here. He's been on the last couple. We talked about a little bit of EJ. We also talked PM 2.5 small sensor monitoring. So there you have it. And we're going to be back here and digging in a little bit further on some other items. And then we've got Rich Hamill as well. So if you've listened to our episodes in the past, Rich has been on covering a whole wide variety of issues. So gentlemen, welcome. Today, we want to focus on, like I said, PM 2.5. Why? Well, one, there's been a couple of things that have occurred recently, current events that we want to cover. But if you think about capital project permitting, permitting for big growth projects where we're going to have industry stakeholders and public stakeholders and all those different folks getting involved, air permitting still remains one of the more difficult environmental media where we encounter permitting hurdles. If air is one of the more difficult environmental media around permitting, then PM 2.5 is one of the more difficult pollutants that need to be addressed. And there are some current events that filter right into that and where we can look at some ways to plan ahead for some things that are going to occur next year. So that's why PM 2.5 is the focus. And we're going to cover two broad topics. The first is going to be the PM 2.5 National Ambient Air Quality Standard, 
which is due, it seems like due to be revised coming up in the middle of 2022. And there has recently been a EPA supplement to the 2019 Integrated Science Assessment for Particulate Matter released over the last couple of weeks. We'll talk about what that is and some different things we could do to plan ahead. And then there has been some other I'll call it unrelated, but Dan, you could tell us how unrelated or related it is, but some other guidance from EPA around PM 2.5 and how it relates to precursor type issues and capital permitting. So we have these two things. We're going to cover the next issue first, and then we're going to cover the precursor issue second, and we'll tie them together in whatever ways that we need to. Okay. With that being said, let's get into this. National ambient air quality standards, these are health-based standards. So EPA looks at things like epidemiological studies, studies that come out investigating the impacts of human health from a number of different pollutants, in this case, PM 2.5. And the NACs are really supposed to be purely health-based. They're purely health-based standards. And just intuitively, from a layman's perspective, you would think, okay, a health-based standard. There's a level of a pollutant exposure that's healthy, and there's a level that's not healthy. And we should generally be able to agree on where the health-based standard should be set. But what we see from the studies and the information that EPA puts together is that it's not that simple all the time. So there are a number of epidemiological studies There are different data sets in each. There are different quantities of data in each. Oftentimes, there are other factors and other pollutants in the studies that can sometimes obscure the direct health impacts of PM 2.5. So long story short, you could show 100 different stakeholders in this NAC setting process the same set of studies, and each stakeholder could come up with a very different conclusion around maybe how the PM 2.5 ambient standard should be set. So it's not quite as cut and dry of a process as you might think. So I wanted to just kind of set the stage with that first and see if the two of you had any comments on things you've seen in these NAC standard setting processes before. And really, Rich, I'll start with you. Just any comments on what you're seeing in this supplemental document that I mentioned. And maybe let's just recap a little bit of the last six months of where EPA has been around the PM two and a half NACs. So Rich, I'll go to you to start and then Dan will cover you second if you have anything to add. Go ahead, Rich. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the this recent update is based around the uh, independent scientific review from 2019. So we have to include that in this conversation for sure. Um, I, I guess just to step back really quickly, I think probably because PM 2.5 and particulate in general has been such a kind of a difficult pollutant to qualify, quantify in comparison to some of the other ones is why we've seen that standard change so many times. It's, it's the most active of the, of the criteria pollutants in terms of how often it's been updated five times since original, uh, originally brought to be in 1971. Um, now, more recently, the independent uh, scientific review for the most recent update <clears throat> concluded in 2019. And, um, you know, there it's a collection of opinions by a number of different uh, uh, doctors and 
having reviewed a lot of different data, you get a lot of different opinions about it. And um, at that point, they make a recommendation and the administrator VPA then has the uh, option of whether they want to uh, take upon rulemaking around those recommendations or do they want to uh, decide that the NACS doesn't need to be revised. So um, the uh, the most recent study concluded that the PM 2.5 24-hour standard was probably uh, sufficient as it stands, but the annual one probably is not. So the general recommendation was that that NACS to be more protective should be reduced to a number somewhere between 8 and, 12, eight and um, 10, I believe, uh, micrograms per cubic meter down from the current standard of 12. Um, the things that come into play here is, well, that's a range for one thing. Um, a lot has to do with the kind of state of the Environmental Protection Agency and, and where they're leaning at the time. Uh, so the last EPA was more favorable uh, to industry in general and maybe less likely to uh, reduce uh, a national ambient air quality standard. The new administration is kind of the opposite, as we've seen. So this update essentially could be seen as a, a reversal of the Trump EPA's decision to um, uh, keep the, the NACs as it is and essentially reopens the book on the 2019 uh, independent review saying, OK, we're going to relook at that data and also add additional data on it. So the most recent study really just kind of reopens the book on the 2019 analysis and uh, paves the way for reconsideration of the NACs with some kind of rulemaking action probably in the next year. Thanks, Rich. And just to just looking at that study, this is the supplement. This is just some quotes from the supplement just to give people a, a sense. Um, recent studies, so those studies since 2019 that they looked at um, – that th this supplement finds that recent studies further support and in some instances extend the evidence that form the basis of the causality determinations presented within the 2019 ISA um, that characterizes relationships between PM exposure and health and welfare effects. In brief, this finds the following. And then there's a bullet where it talks about it actually it actually provides a range of 5.9 to 16.5 not as necessarily a recommendation, but when it's talking about the collection of studies, it's sort of saying, well, you know, here's the general range that some of these studies fall within. So this is where we get into all those different opinions. Um, and where do you set it? Like you were like you were mentioning, Rich. Um, but just to give a sense, Dan, anything to add on top of this in terms of the next setting process or anything around it? I think one thing that's important to point out that, that Rich brought up that you mentioned is they've essentially reopened the reconsideration. So they're not restarting the process here. So that's why right now EPA is saying that they're going to propose a new uh, standard in 2022, and we could see that finalized by 2023. And we'll see if they even move faster than, than that, given that this has already uh, come out here. Yep. So we, if we take, so we've got, we know we've got this process. Standard was going to be retained. Now it appears it's not going to be retained. It's going to be proposed at something tighter. That has a big ripple effect on permitting projects. So let's focus on permitting projects for now, and then we'll weave around and probably get into some different topics, I'm sure, and go off on a few tangents. But there's a couple of things 
that come to mind when we're tightening a PM 2.5 standard. The first thing is, what does the PM 2.5 monitoring network look like? And I think this network looks different than some of the other criteria pollutants. Maybe we could talk about that a bit. Second thing is background concentration. So how do how do the existing background concentrations being measured at these monitoring stations compare to the current standard? And we'll focus on the annual because that's the one that tends to be the driver. The current standard of 12 versus how the the background um, might compare to a Titan standard. What does that mean in terms of headroom? We'll use the term headroom for now when it comes to big capital projects. So those are a couple of things that come to mind right away when we start to see a standard getting tightened. There's a lot to go through there, but Dan, walk through that a bit from your perspective. Maybe just describe this the, the network and the concept of headroom, why it's important, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I think headroom is the biggest issue. And Last time I took a look at the monitoring network in the lower 48, I just averaged all the annual design values and came up with 7.8 micrograms annual average. So right now we don't have much headroom below the existing 12 microgram standard. That's that's different than a lot of the other criteria pollutants. We see much, much higher headrooms for some of the gaseous pollutants like SO2 and NO2, for example. So this headroom then when we start permitting and need to do air dispersion modeling, we don't have a lot of room when we have to add in background concentrations where we're looking at this monitoring network to establish those background concentrations to our model concentrations. So for example, if I'm using that that eight microgram uh, average background concentration, that means I only have four micrograms to model my entire project. So if we start to reduce that headroom, that just limits the space that is available for permitting to model below the NACs. So that that's one of the, the bigger impacting effects of the current headroom and lowering the NACs is going to shrink that headroom even further. Makes sense, Dan. Rich, any other thoughts around headroom, monitoring network, things you've seen, lessons learned around some of that? Well, a lot of the concern um, on top of headroom is just that um, a lot of the background is is could be naturally occurring uh, mm-hmm. or non-domestic right which mm-hmm. is nothing that the United States industry could do about and and so there's a question as to you know if you ratchet down the NACs do you create non-attainment areas that cannot be solved mm-hmm. simply because natural levels of particulate matter are higher than that background. That's particularly a problem in the uh, west part of the United States. Uh, and then, of course, you get into uh, things like the, the the wildfires and things that cause spikes in PM2.5. And while they sometimes remove those from the monitoring data, they don't remove it all. Uh, so, you know, those are additional concerns. With a Titan standard to eight on an annual basis, then it seems like many areas, I'll say many, I don't know if I'll say most, but many areas would fit into one of two buckets. Attainment areas with so little headroom that the existing tools that we have to permit and model under the attainment permitting program may be virtually impossible. That could be one bucket. And the second bucket could be the one you mentioned, Rich, which is we have non-attainment situations that might not be – that there might not be levers to pull um, simply because of where the – 
PM 2.5 is coming from and the ability to pull on some of those levers. So it will create some interesting issues that we'll need to address. Next, let's get into let's get into some of those tools that we use and we'll focus on the attainment situation. Dan, like you mentioned, I think you mentioned a 7.8 mm-hmm. microgram per cubic meter sort of average. We'll have certainly many more attainment areas than we will non-attainment if a standard were to be tightened to uh, to 10, probably still more if, if we if it's eight as well, although that list will start to shift from one to the other. But let's talk about the tools that we use to do the permitting for these important projects. And I will just say, from the standpoint of this podcast, the things that we typically talk about, we work with industrial facilities and help those facilities do the permitting that needs to be done and comply with the conditions that that we need to comply with. So certainly we're coming at it from the perspective of, okay, there's going to be some challenges here and we have to navigate them to be able to permit successfully. But all, anyone can listen to this podcast. All the different stakeholders in the process can listen to it, um, obviously, and do. And so I think the things that we're going to talk about are things that all the stakeholders would encounter as part of the permitting process, certainly as part of the process of going through public comments and looking at things that the agency presents. So I think this is the the stuff we're talking about is widely applicable um, across stakeholders. I would say that generally when we're talking about projects, we are not really talking about projects that would actually result in a monitored exceedance of the PM 2.5 NACs. We're talking about there's a difference between something that would result in a monitored exceedance of the PM 2.5 NACs, like a true exceedance, which, you know, that would not be permittable um, versus what we're talking about, which is there's a difference between an actual monitored exceedance and utilizing the modeling tools that facilities need to utilize to show modeled, modeled concentrations less than the standard. And there's a big difference between those two things, in part because the modeling tool that we use can sometimes be conservative. And some of the decisions that facilities need to make and some of the interpretations and the way things need to be combined together are conservative. In a sense, that make, you know that does make some sense. You would want a permitting process that allows for some conservative layers to it, but we certainly have those and they're piled on top of one another. And I think they're important to understand. So Rich, I'll go to you from, from the standpoint of AirMod, which is the model that we're using when we have to address this headroom. I just look for your general take. What are some of the most conservative aspects of AirMod or what can be the most conservative aspects when we're looking at something like PM 2.5? What do you encounter? Yeah. I mean, aside from the conservatism by design, such that, you know, if you can model in, the assumption is that you would monitor in. There are certain aspects that especially apply to particulate that are more conservative, perhaps, than other parts of the modeling environment. The biggest part is that the handling of fugitive sources that are non-stack sources, be them vents, piles of fuel or whatever that may blow around, those require the use of sources other than the AirMod point source. You could say that the point source is kind of like the generic source in AirMod. And area sources and volume sources tend to provide conservative results uh, just by default. And when I say conservative, I mean beyond just the natural level of conservatism that's designed in the model. Now, when you get into characterizing sources that way, that's where the 
modeling gets to be a bit of an art because these sources are often not easily classified as one or the other, or there might be things about them that make them not a great fit. But those types of sources in particular, when dealing with low win situations, can provide extremely conservative monitoring results. Another aspect of that is even for those sources that have stacks, they tend to be very short, right? We're not necessarily talking about boiler stacks and things here. We might be talking about building vents or small stacks on top of uh, tanks or, or things like that. And those can be, if they're point sources, subject to downwash effects, aerodynamic downwash. And that's another aspect of the model that tends to bring about more conservatism than just the designed amount of conservatism in the modeling. So you get a couple different whammies there uh, on, the, on the particulate side in particular that can cause problems at the model. Thinking about some of those conservative layers that can occur, Dan, I want to go to you. We're talking about a PM 2.5 standard that's potentially being tightened up. You mentioned the headroom earlier. So when we've got limited headroom within which to model and we have these overly conservative in certain instances, things that are occurring with certain sources – What are some of the things, it could be some related to what Rich just mentioned, but it may be other things that you've encountered. What are some of the things for facilities to start thinking about? Okay, we've got a capital project coming up. We know we might have tighter standards. We know we've got a model. We know we've got some of these layers that could be conservative. What are some of the things they can be thinking about right now from a modeling perspective proactively to potentially inject some more realism mm-hmm. um, into the modeled results. Yeah, there's definitely a couple things here. I mean, depending on where your site's located at, you take, take a look at, you know, what is the source of meteorological data that you may be using? It may be some National Weather Service airport data that's pretty far away and may not be representative of your site. So you could consider collecting on-site data. So that's how you're going to get, you know, better predicted concentrations if you've got on-site meteorological data. Now, historically, that's always meant, you know, setting up a physical net tower collecting data for one year. Although I'll point out that in the 2017 amendments to Appendix W, which is the guideline air quality models, they put out a tool called the Mesoscale Model Interface Program, which allows the development of site-specific data using gridded meteorological data. So there might be a couple different ways to develop site-specific data, one of which isn't going out in the field and, and actually putting up instrumentation. So I've been through that for a couple projects and saw some good improvements, especially when I put out a SODAR where we were able to collect multiple levels of wind measurements in the atmosphere as opposed to just one level of wind speed and wind direction data. So that's one item, taking a look at emission factors and potentially doing emissions testing. That can be difficult for PM2.5, and especially when we're looking at products of combustions and condensable emissions and wet stacks. That's where there are some limitations in testing, but where you can refine emissions to, you know, have the most accurate factors and so you're, you know, you're modeling what you're putting into the model is accurate. That's certainly a good strategy. Looking at, as Rich mentioned, a lot of the issues with particulate is fugitive releases, low level releases. So the 
concept of where is my ambient air boundary become especially important? What is the distance from that source to the ambient air boundary? So what is your property line look like now? How are you defining the ambient boundary? How are you restricting access? That might be something to look at. And if you own property, you could potentially expand that ambient air boundary through some approach to restrict public access. Or it could be buying up properties. I have clients that whenever a house adjacent to their facility goes in the market, they buy it up so they can extend their their ambient air boundary. Dan, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but EPA had draft guidance. I'm trying to think. Maybe it's stayed draft. I can't remember if stayed draft or went final. They're all blurring together, but there are things that can be done from an ambient air boundary perspective that don't just involve a very large fence. There can be some other things that get done around security cameras and patrols and things like that, correct? Yeah, that's right. And and the guidance you're referring to didn't really change the definition of ambient air boundary. It just put out some of the other options for restricting access, like you pointed out. Doesn't need to be a fence. Could be, you know, just cameras or security patrols are also looked at defining better like physical barriers like a river or a swamp or, you know, terrain that limits people to be able to gain access as all methods for restricting public access and defining that ambient air boundary. Yeah, where something like a physical barrier would be prohibitive or, you know, physically impossible because right. it's in the middle of the swamp or whatever right. it whatever it might be. And the idea here is that if there's the ability to expand the property and the areas in which OSHA is covering from a regulatory perspective, that can be beneficial for permitting exercises where we know we've got this super conservative stuff going on with low-level releases right near the fence. And I've got a couple examples where don't just rely on your existing ambient air boundary that you utilized for modeling for the last 15 years. Like These are more stringent standards. They're becoming more stringent. And that's where I'm always going back and looking at that ambient air boundary and seeing where I can expand it for every new project that I get involved with. Top priority item for conversation with the state agency when we know we're going to do modeling, mm-hmm. ambient air boundary, um, among others. There's certainly a long list of that. And it's interesting how this has evolved. I think, Dan, you and I have talked on this this podcast, I don't know, a few months ago about or maybe it was you and I, Rich, how modeling has evolved so much as the standards have been tightened up to where folks doing modeling need to be one of the first people in the room when projects come up because it's such a driver for these. And it didn't necessarily used to be like that a couple of decades ago, at least not maybe in as many cases. So it's interesting how it's changed. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Dan and Rich on PM 2.5 Considerations. Hope you'll join us next time for part two. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.